From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A new state law that took effect on July 1st is supposed to help keep your personal data more private. Colorado is just the third state to pass this type of law. We'll talk with a computer security expert about what you need to know. Then, a new study shows a disturbing number of people dying from pregnancy-related causes in the U.S. The numbers are especially daunting for Black and Indigenous women. We'll talk about possible causes and explore proposed solutions. When we think about disparities, we really have to look at the continuum. What are the drivers of health? Later, the Colorado Shakespeare Festival returns, and a woman in the role of King Lear is just one of the creative surprises. You don't get to play this part until you're a seasoned actor and have done a few things. And even so, it's the greatest challenge you could ever have. Individual giving isn't the only way to support CPR. Learn about employer matching gifts, how to give stock or securities, and how to give through a foundation, all on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. You may have noticed a new and persistent pop-up on your phone or computer screen over the last few days. Try not to get too annoyed. This one is designed to give consumers more control over their personal data. It's part of the Colorado Privacy Act, which took effect on July 1st. Steve Fady, chair of the Computer Science Department at Metropolitan State University of Denver, joins us now to tell us more about it. Welcome, Steve. Thank you so much. How will this new law impact people's privacy online? So, it's a great question. And in general, we will have more control over what people, uh, corporations, if you will, uh, do with our data. And so we now have the ability to opt in, opt out, uh, and choose, if you will, what what the corporations who are doing business in Colorado mm-hmm. do with our data. And I think that's an inver- a very important step. Now, this pop-up I mentioned gives me three choices about what happens to my data. Tell us about those, please. Sure, absolutely. So one is uh, there are actually two different levels of uh, information that we can give. One is personal and one is sensitive. The sensitive then goes into the, you know, uh, our our political affiliations, our sexual orientations, our health, those sorts of things. And in general, we need to be very, very careful around those, of course. The personal data is essentially name, uh, possibly address, those sorts of things, and are somewhat less sensitive. And so the question, I guess, to all of us becomes is, well, how comfortable are we sharing those data? And how comfortable are we, you know, allowing the providers, as they are called, uh, the controllers of the data, to share those data with what we generally call third parties, right? So Mm -hmm. um, many different places sell data, sell our information. And so the question becomes to all of us, I think, is to, you know, what do we want to have in the first party, right? What do we want to give to online real uh, retailers, et cetera? And then what do we want them to be able to disclose, to sell to other parties? And so those are some of the questions that will be coming through on the pop-ups. 
Now, I should note that this Colorado law not only applies for profit companies, but also nonprofit organizations. So is it that now these entities have to tell me what kind of information they're collecting and where it's going? Yeah, that's a great point. And it's different. So California, Virginia, and the European Union have already have some of these sorts of regulations in place. Uh, Colorado, I think, is the first to pull nonprofits into mm. that uh, set of regulations, which uh, honestly I think is appropriate. And so we need to know regardless whether it's a for-profit people are making money directly from us, but I also suggest that nonprofits have been able to sell our data, again, clearly not for profit, but for part of their operating expenses. So I think that's completely appropriate that um, Colorado has chosen to include nonprofits in its act. Hmm. Now, a lot of times I get a notice that asks me to accept cookies on a site. Hmm. What's the difference between that and this new notice? Great question. And so cookies in general track us from site to site. And so when we go from one site to another site, we've all had the experience of, you know, looking at something on a shopping site and then going to a social media site and that thing that we were looking for yes. pops in the social <laughs> media site, right? That's a cookie, generically. And so uh, the CPA, then the Colorado Privacy Act, is much more concerned, of, well, it is completely concerned about when we enter our data into a site. The CPA then is not as concerned or is unconcerned about tracking as those places that hold our personal data. Hmm. Cookies don't generically hold our personal data. They do track where we have been, and that is to some degree, of course, personal. But it doesn't contain those cookies, if you will, don't contain any identifying information about us other than where the sites we have visited. Now, as I'm scrolling through dozens and dozens of sites a day, what is the incentive to click on and customize the information I'm willing to give out? Like, right. so, why should right. I give it that kind of time and attention? Yeah, yeah. I think it's important, right? And so a couple things here. One is I do think we need to be aware of what sites are gathering what data on us. And so in general, right, again, accepting cookies isn't the same as entering your name, I don't know, address, all these other sorts of things. So cookies in general don't have that information. Now, I will say that there are sites that aggregate our information. Mm -hmm. That is, they will track us where we go with the cookies and they might be able to then correlate, you know, uh, information that we have entered into one site with information that they have gathered on another site. And that's very, very important. And so any one site might not be a big deal, but the data aggregation, I think, can be a big deal. But again, cookies don't give give out our personal information generically. They track us, but they don't give out our inf personal information. Now, those sites, the retail sites, those sorts of things that are gathering our information then clearly do have 
much more information and they can combine, if you will, the information they have on where we go with the information that we have, if you will, voluntarily entered into one or more sites. Does that make sense? Yeah. Does every site have to follow this new law? Yes. Every site that has over 100,000 Coloradoans um, or every site that collects personal information of more than 25,000 Coloradoans. So I would suggest that most of the major retailers, for example, um, will have to follow this law. I will also say that um, it's not significantly different, maybe than like what California already has in place. Uh, mm -hmm. There are differences clearly in the law. So California basically says, if you make more than $25 million, you must do this. And Colorado has different parameters around that, including, mm -hmm. as you mentioned earlier, the nonprofits. Mm -hmm. But uh, in general, then um, many of the same, and I think important aspects of the California law play in Colorado. Now, how can the state enforce this? Is it going to monitor millions of sites all the time? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, this is also interesting in that uh, in California, individuals can sue. In Colorado, it has to be the attorney general. And so I think essentially what will happen is that individuals will complain, if you will, or uh, contact the attorney general when there has been a breach of this particular act. Now, it's also the case that the uh, attorney general certainly can do this on their own. And certainly there are, as in other places, fairly substantial penalties for breaching this particular law. Now, do you see any pitfalls to this new law? Like what potential problems do you see? Well, problems, right? It's always going to be that it's going to cost businesses to implement this. And so, you know, every single business that has, which is a bunch, that have the parameters that are, you know, included in the act will have to implement the um, changes. And so that is expensive. On the other hand, I think there are substantial benefits to Coloradoans. There's transparency, mm. there's a requirement of doing, you know, due diligence, if you will, to keep people's data secure. Mm. And so I do believe there is a major upside. Steve, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Steve Beatty chairs the Department of Computer Science at Metropolitan State University of Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. There's one type of crop that uses the most water along the Colorado River. I always joke around with my wife and I tell her if somebody could figure out how to capture the scent of freshly cut alfalfa and put it in a candle, you know, they'd be millionaires. To save water, we'll have to grow less of it or grow it better. An indigenous farm manager shows us how on the CPR News podcast, Parched, wherever you get podcasts. Supported in part by the Grand Canyon Trust.
A new study shows that the number of people dying in the U.S. from pregnancy-related causes has more than doubled in the last 20 years. It found that mortality rates are, quote, unacceptably high among all racial and ethnic groups in the U.S., but the worst outcomes are among Black, Native American, and Alaska Native people. My daughter's story is loud, colorful, and artful. It's a game! She was awake, aware, and active. And yet she still died. After she gave birth, Shimani was complaining that she had really sharp chest pains. The ambulance came. I'm telling them the symptoms. Is she on drugs? Next set of people come in. Is she on drugs? They kept asking her mother, is she on any drugs? <laughs> like, do y'all talk? We waited a solid 12 hours. She's gone. That's from the award-winning documentary Aftershock, which focuses on Black maternal and infant mortality. I talked about this issue in January with Dr. Sheila Davis, the former director of the Colorado Office of Health Equity. Our discussion also included Velveta Golightly-Howell. She's the CEO of Denver-based Sister to Sister International Network of Professional African-American Women, Inc., Dr. Davis, according to the Colorado News Collaborative, a nonprofit statewide media resource hub, the state's progress in recent years on racial and ethnic inequities shows that the gap between non-Hispanic Black and non-Hispanic White infant mortality rates has narrowed more quickly in Colorado than nationally, including in health. But still, a disproportionate number of Black babies and Black birthing people are dying. Tell us more about that. So let me set the table for you around this issue. I'm going to speak nationally. We're going to look nationally, and then we're going to focus on Colorado. Black birthing people in the United States are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes as white birthing people. Black infants are more than twice as likely to die as white babies. So that's the national picture. And then looking at the state of Colorado, 20 years ago, African-American infant mortality was around 16 per 1,000 live births. And so 16, to put that in perspective, is on par with what we see in developing nations. And that Mm. was the situation in Colorado. But fortunately, we are moving in the right direction. And it is currently between 9 and 10, which is incredible that we have made that progress, but we still see these significant gaps in infant mortality. So what are some of the factors that are contributing to these deaths? Let's start with the infants. Some of the leading causes of infant mortality include congenital defects, low birth weight, um, prematurity, sudden infant death syndromes. These are some of the causes. But when we think about disparities, we really have to look at the continuum. Um, We have to think about what causes or what contributes to our health. What are the drivers of health? And so we traditionally think about what happens within the healthcare system. So we need to have access to healthcare. Um, We need quality healthcare. We need culturally responsive healthcare. So these are the things that need to happen within the healthcare system. And in Colorado, we also have what we're calling maternity care deserts. And 40% of Colorado is considered a maternity care desert, which means they don't have obstetrical services, birthing centers, 
Okay, nothing. So you need access. All right. And then you need access to quality care. And I define quality care, particularly in the area of maternal and infant health, as interdisciplinary care. So you might need, you know, an obstetrician. You might need a perinatologist. So a specialist. A specialist who mm-hmm. specializes in treating high-risk pregnancies. A nutritionist, a behavioral health specialist, a doula. You know, all of these make up a team, and you need that when you're dealing with African-American maternal and infant mortality. You need those teams because the data suggests that those interdisciplinary teams make a difference. So, and you also need providers that have lived experiences that are similar to the patients they serve. Hmm. And we see that that also makes a difference. Okay. So these are all factors that contribute to infant health that are within the healthcare system. But let's zoom out. Because when we look at drivers of health, we also have to think about housing. We have to think about access to clean air and clean water. We have to consider access to healthy food. And there's also been a lot of studies that show down to the zip code. Yes. That is a big predictor of your health outcome. I'm so glad that you brought that up, Chandra, because the data, the public health data, is now pointing to the fact that our zip codes are much greater predictors of our health outcomes than our genetic codes. And Mm. that wasn't the case when I was a medical student. And our zip codes, you know, where we tend to grow up and where we live tends to be influenced by policies. And policies have been, you know, racially biased. And so that's why we see these disparities. Well, getting down to the actual medical conditions, what are some of the challenges these people are facing in pregnancy with specific conditions? Birthing people of color tend to have higher rates of hypertension. They tend to suffer from obesity. They tend to suffer from lung disease. And all of these chronic conditions put you at a higher risk for a poor birth outcome. So those are conditions that people of color are experiencing at higher rates than the overall population. The state health department has said racism is one big factor in all of this. And I'm pretty sure there are some people going, how are those two connected to this? Can you kind of explain the thought process on that ideology? Yes. Another great question. So there is a growing body of evidence that links toxic psychological stress caused by institutional racism, structural racism, interpersonal racism, and poor birth outcomes. And I'm going to describe a a study of African immigrants coming to the United States, giving birth. They are not suffering from these higher rates of maternal uh, mortality or infant mortality. So you're saying... Birthing people from other countries slash continents exactly. are not experiencing the same as, say, African-Americans in America. Yes. But two generations later, you see these disparities wow. because it's the lived experience of being African-American in the United States that is toxic. Hmm. Wow. So, Belva, let's bring you into the conversation There are a lot of issues to explore in terms of public health challenges in, say, the Black community. Why was this issue so important to highlight? 
we have members who've actually had experiences with childbirth, and we have seen that the quality of medical care makes a big difference. We have also seen that it does not matter your educational level. It does not matter how much money you have in the bank. It does not matter your professional status. These odds of you experiencing problems in childbirth are much greater than are other populations of women, particularly Caucasian women. And so that is why we have decided to focus on it, because to us, our children are the future. And we are the future because we develop our children. If we're not here to do that, either because we have passed away or because we are so sick that we cannot care for our children properly, then our opportunity to live quality lives, which are an innate benefit and privilege that we all have based on the U.S. Constitution, if you were to look at the preamble. So that is why we decided that we had to bring attention to this critical matter. And we had noticed that no other organization in the state had focused on it to raise awareness among Coloradans. Maternal mortality and morbidity is something that is a public crisis. It affects adversely our entire country and beyond the country because we're not just here in the U.S. We are everywhere. Dr. Davis and Velveta, thanks so much to you both for joining us. Thank you for this invitation. Thank you for the opportunity. Velveta Golightly Howell is CEO of the Denver-based Sister to Sister International Network of Professional African American Women, Inc. Dr. Sheila Davis is the former director of the Colorado Office of Health Equity. We spoke in January. A new study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association shows the number of people dying from pregnancy-related causes in the U.S. has more than doubled in the last 20 years. The documentary Aftershock about Black maternal and infant mortality that you heard briefly is now available on the streaming platform Hulu. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. When the Chautauqua movement arrived in Boulder in 1898, folks came in droves, but the site was rustic. On a somewhat barren mesa under the Flatirons, thousands pitched tents to attend courses for intellectual and moral improvement. The Colorado Chautauqua was the state's first real summer school, and to accommodate visitors, a flurry of building followed, including Boulder's first transit system, an electric railway. An especially huge crowd came in 1904 to see the March King, John Philip Sousa. At its peak, the Chautauqua movement engaged millions around the country, but the rise of television, movies, and the automobile thinned crowds. Today, Boulder is one of just three Chautauquas that remain. It was re-energized when the Colorado Music Festival made its home there in the 70s, and now it's a designated National Historic Landmark. A Colorado postcard from CPR.
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The restaurant and food industry is one of the toughest to work in. Then add in the challenges that everyday life can throw at you, and it can be extra tough. CPR's podcast, My Story So Far, is about real people in their own words. Today, we hear from a small group of local chefs, servers, managers, and entrepreneurs who came together for a story slam in Denver to reflect on their careers and experiences in the industry. Here's host Luis Antonio Perez. Our first story comes from Mario Childs. Mario was reluctant to share his story. He said he didn't think he had a story to share. But when I asked him how he ended up in Colorado from his hometown of Memphis, he said that it all started by getting stranded and experiencing homelessness. Here's Mario. To start off with, I, everybody must know that I am Memphis. I come from Memphis, Tennessee. I was born and raised there. I spent my whole entire life there until I got here. So how I got here is interesting because like you ever had a friend that you trust with your life and you would do anything for or go anywhere with? Well, that's how I got here. My best friend actually came to my house one day and, and he was like, let's go to Colorado for my birthday. It's the weekend. We'll be back in Memphis Monday. And I'm like, man, I'm not going to no Colorado. I don't know nothing about Colorado. And he was like, man, come on. I knew you would go. I bought the ticket already. I'm like, you bought a ticket for real? And he threw it on the table. True enough, it said Denver, Colorado. So I'm like, okay, well. It is his birthday. I might as well just go on, go up there with him. He done bought the ticket or whatever, you know. So we get on the bus. True enough, we get here. I'm happy. We go to the dispenser. I ain't never seen that much weed in my life. I'm like, <laughs> what the? Is this real? Like, y'all got this in one building? Like, and he was like, yeah, dude, come on. We're going to have fun and everything, you know. We went to, I think it was 7-Eleven on... Uh, Larimer Street, if I'm saying that right, downtown. And I went in and got me some water, got me a few other things, come out, and they were gone. So I'm standing there, like, okay, they done went around the corner. They must have double parked or something. I'm waiting. 30 minutes done went by. You know, so I'm calling this guy. Hey, dude, where you at? No answer, no text, no nothing. So now I'm scared because I'm in this new city, new state. I don't know nothing. I'm standing there and I don't know where to go. I ain't know what to do. And probably about an hour later, they came back. And he was like, man, I can't do you like this. I can't leave you on the street. I'm just going to take you to the shelter. And I'm like, wait, to the shelter? So the guy pulled up to the shelter. He was like, dude, I'm sorry, but this it. He pulled my stuff out. So they literally ditched me as soon as we got here. And I was so upset when I seen my stuff, you guys. It was like, I just lost everything. Like my house, my business, my dogs, my everything in Memphis just in the blink of an eye, you know, I didn't have no way back home. People back home don't have it to get me back home. So being at the shelter was an experience for me because I had never been homeless before. So I didn't know what to do. 
who to talk to, who not to talk to. I just talked to God. It was a long journey. I was homeless up here for almost a year and a half. I slept on the ground, never done that before, under trees. That was like the wildest experience I ever went through. But I never gave up. And I prayed. And so far, God been putting all the right people in my life. I went from being intake in the shelter to staff in the shelter to counselor in the shelter to helping homeless people get off the street, putting them in assisted livings, getting them jobs. And it, it progressed from there. I got a job up here. I got me a little place. I actually met my wife at work at the shelter. And then I went to school to an entrepreneurial class. I was, I was in this class and this, my teacher said something. She was like, you gotta find your niche. When you find your niche, and then everything will work out for you. And at that moment, the only thing I could think about was my Uncle Albert Jr. My Uncle Albert Jr. could barbecue ribs that would fall apart, and your mouth would just fall apart with the ribs. I'm talking about they so good, you know? And everybody used to sit around and be like, telling him how it was so good, and he always had the music and stuff going. It's like a lifelong dream. I always wanted to be like my uncle. He always made people happy and he always fed them. And every time they see him, they would smile, you know? So in that moment, I felt like that maybe I should bring Memphis style barbecue up to Colorado so y'all can get a taste of what I, I love. So one day I called my wife. I said, I don't want to work for nobody anymore. She was like, really? I was like, yeah, I don't want to do this no more. I want to come home and work on my trailer and build that and get it going. And she said, okay, do it. Come home and start working on it. And that's what I did. It took me two and a half years, but I built everything, put everything together. I made sure it went through inspection. And it was hard. It was hard to build it. I built it from the ground up. Uh, my wife and I, we found the right pop-up trailer, and I converted it from a pop-up trailer into a food trailer, which led to the Southern Pit. I would like to say, no matter what you go through, if you don't give up, you will make it. It's, it's all about what you have inside of you, because I could have gave up when they left me here and I could still be homeless on drugs and doing other stuff, God knows what. But I didn't give up because I was always taught to never quit. No matter what situation you get in, just don't quit. Cause there's always gonna be a better way on the other side of whatever you came through. But we have to go through something in order to get something. So I went through a lot learning a new city, learning new people, new ways. But now I feel like I've achieved a small goal of mine, which was to be in the food industry. But my goals are right, way bigger than where I'm at right now. I, I have an idea for Little Memphis. That's what I want to call it, Southern Pit Memphis-style barbecue. Little Memphis, and if I can somehow get me a lot or a spot or something permanent, 
I am going to create a spot where you can actually come and experience my city here in your city. That's my goal. So if you haven't tried the Southern Pit, please take time to come to Thornton and see me, I'm Mario, and enjoy some of the experience of the Southern Pit. And thank you for believing in the Southern Pit. From the mountains to the south, put this meat in your mouth. Keep it going for Mario. Mario is still looking for a permanent location. In the meantime, you can find his food truck north of Denver in Thornton, Colorado, and on the Southern Pit Instagram page. Find it linked in our show notes. Our next storyteller simply goes by the name Socks. She's a longtime food industry worker and involved with an organization named Chow, who offer mental health resources and support specifically to food industry workers. Socks started in the industry right out of high school and over the years developed a passion for the industry, eventually growing into a role as one of Denver's best restaurant managers. So it was hard when 20 years into her career, Socks found herself on an airplane questioning the industry she loves. My story through the hospitality world is a little weird, especially considering where it's at at this particular moment. So I wasn't even 18 years old when I started like working in hospitality. I just gotten out of high school. My friend got me a job. I started off as like the room service slash busser kid for a restaurant attached to a Holiday Inn in Colorado Springs. And but it was insane. And it was like a perfect fit for me because I was a hyperactive kid that loved to talk and I like thrived on the chaos and just, I didn't, I mean, I was getting paid to talk and I never stayed in one spot because I was running room service. So I was like all over the place and I ended up working there for like three and a half years and a lot of crazy stuff while I worked, happened while I worked at that hotel. But one day that really sticks out is about a year and a half after I started working there, I had just gotten a fake ID. Me and my friends came up with this elaborate, nefarious plan for me to get my fake ID. And so all my coworkers knew I got it, and everybody was so excited So because I, I could finally go out drinking with them, right? So we go to this little dive bar right around the corner from the restaurant, and we start drinking Southern Kamikazes which if anybody has had one, you know that that is like a mistake waiting to happen. But we did it anyways. And it was great, man. I was loving every minute of it. Like, I finally felt like I had bonded with all my coworkers. Like, I could go out and drink with them and be part of the group and experience all this stuff. And we could share our war stories. And, and so I kind of took that bonding with people as a roadmap or a, like a stepping stone for everything I would do in life. Like I would use alcohol for awkward situations. I would use it to bond with people in social settings, working in restaurants. It was like the way we decompressed, the way we celebrated. I mean, no matter what, we found a reason to drink, but we'd always find some reason you know, we'd be like, oh, we had a bad day. Let's go get drunk. Oh, we had a good day. Let's go get drunk. So my drinking just kept progressing like through my entire time as I worked in the hospitality industry. 
And I'm also like, you know, slowly moving up the chain, you know, taking on more responsibility and more responsibility. Until one day, like 20 years later, I find myself on an airplane and I'm sober for the first time, which is crazy because I've traveled a lot. Like I've been all over the world, but this is the first time I've ever flown sober. And the reason why I'm on this plane sober is because I'm flying to Chicago to check myself into a 28 day rehab program and I can't show up wasted. So I get to Chicago and I check myself in and it was nerve wracking, but as I started to settle in, like rehab was a great place for me to be. I had no responsibilities. You know, you're there just to focus on yourself and take a look at how you got in these situations and learn skills so that you can like better yourself and not repeat all these things. And so as resistant as I was to actually go to rehab for years, I swore I'd never go, like I told everybody. But I actually started to really enjoy it there. And it like helped me build up all this confidence, like I could actually do this. And, and I also, while I'm in rehab, I find out that I won this big award from the Colorado Restaurant Association for like manager of the year. So like, I am pumped. Like I, I'm coming back to Colorado. You know, I've done all this hard work. I've done the hard stuff. I've gone to rehab, like life is going to be fantastic when I get back. My career's taking on a whole new level. I'm sober. I've got everything's perfect, right? Rehab is like the honeymoon fun vacation before you start all the actual work. Because when you get back, it's like, not only are you dealing with everyday life again, but then there's like recovery coaches, therapies, groups, like all these things you're supposed to do to keep up with your recovery. It's like a part-time job within itself. But I'm like, I'm still, I'm going to do this, right? Like, my life is set up perfect. It's going to be a fairy tale from here on out. Like everything's on this golden path. That fantasy starts to fade really, really quick as reality starts to kick in. So I fly back and I land at like after 1030 at night. So it's a Saturday night. By the time I woke up the next morning, I had four missed calls from my restaurant wondering where I was at. I had not even been back in the state for 12 hours and they expected me to already be back there doing everything. So quickly I'm like, this isn't gonna be like the simple breeze that I thought it was gonna be. It doesn't take long and things start cracking. And as work starts to take over, I start to let things go by the wayside. You know, first it starts with, well, I don't need a therapist and a recovery coach, I'll, I'll get rid of one. And then it's like, I don't need to go to two group sessions a week. I'll go to one. And slowly, like, my recovery became less important and work was taking over. And then there's just the stress, you know, being there like 60, 70 hours a week and dealing with everybody's problems. And it just starts to build. And I know that I'm like, I know that I'm cracking. I know that my foundation is getting wobbly but I don't tell anybody. Like I just lean into work more and more because I didn't want to let everybody down. Like 
all the people that were so proud of me that I was doing so well. But the more I lean into work, the more it like starts pushing back. And it just keeps building and keeps building. And I think your old drinking buddies, when you quit drinking, they will wait till you're weak. Like they can smell it on you or something. And then they will ask you like, oh, let's go get drinks. And one day I break. And I mean, when I break, I mean, I crumbled and I decided to go have drinks with one of my coworkers. And everybody knew I was teetering, like I was on my last edge. I think there was even a pool going around the restaurant on whether or not I was gonna keep, like if I was gonna quit because things were getting so bad. And so I go and we have a couple of drinks and then those couple drinks turn into a couple more and then I go home and instead of going to bed, I have a couple more drinks and it just all starts over again. And honestly, I don't know how many days I lost because I hadn't had a drink in like four months and I just went on a full on bender. So it, I was probably down like drunk for like three or four days and I was probably sick for like three or four days, you know? And I tried like after that little episode, I, I tried to go back, but I couldn't do it. My heart wasn't in it. I'd let everybody down, you know, like I had no confidence and, and I could not go back to the restaurant. I just couldn't do it. And so I'd go into like this huge, deep depression. I mean, I don't think I barely left my apartment for like two months. I really didn't know what I was gonna do. I'd been working my entire life to get to the point where I was and I had destroyed that. And I kind of hated it. Like I loved my job and I was really good at it, but it wasn't fun. And so one day I find a listing on Craigslist under the gig section to go work this taco festival. And it's like a four hour gig and I sign up just to be their ice runner for this festival. So all I have to do is take bags of ice from all these little taco tents like on this property, right? And I'm like, okay, cool. It's four hours, it's not that big of a commitment. I can handle this. Like if I have an anxiety attack, like I can bail. And I show up and the guy's like, oh, we need you to do something else while you're at this taco festival. We need you to like help with the recycling thing. And I agree because I didn't know I could say no, honestly. But I had fun. For the first time in a really long time, I just got to like interact with the general public. And I didn't have any responsibilities. Like, my God, I'm pointing out, like put the green cups in the green basket, you know? And so while I'm there, I'm like, wait, I don't have to get a real job again. Like I live in Denver and there's always stuff going on. So I can just like work all these weird festivals and that's basically what I've been doing for like the last year and a half is I'm just a gig worker and I go to all these crazy events. I do catering, I've done races and I actually have fun again. Like I enjoy people. I get to go to these amazing venues, you know, I get to see some places I never get to. And it also gives me more time to focus on things like recovery or like some of my volunteer stuff that I do like with Chow. It also gives me time to hang out with like my extended family. Now when people ask me if I wanna do something, I can just say yes. 
and I don't have to worry about like getting permission from anybody or anything. They're like, hey, you want to go to a yoga retreat? I'm like, I don't know why, but sure. And honestly, it's like my biggest failure has kind of turned into one of my greatest accomplishments because where I am now compared to where I was even before I went to rehab, even before I got super depressed is so much different. Like, I'm just happy. I'm more relaxed. Like, I can actually live life again. And I'm still in the same industry that I love, but I'm just on a different path. And it's a pretty awesome path so far. So thank you guys. Socks and Mario's stories remind me of the importance of finding a way to have the pursuit of achievement and the pursuit of happiness work together and having the courage to ask ourselves tough questions to find that balance. Luis Antonio Perez and My Story So Far, CPR's podcast about the lives of real people in Colorado. Find this and all the episodes on our website at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcast. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. What a beautiful evening for some music outside. Indy 1023 is proud to be a media partner of Levitt Pavilion. The season's underway with ticketed shows, plus over 50 shows open to the public. Down for a couple more songs. Tickets and for the full concert calendar, levittdenver.org. The Colorado Shakespeare Festival has been producing theater classics in Boulder for more than 60 seasons. Their next big show, King Lear, premieres Saturday with a woman in the title role of King Lear. It's just one of many creative approaches taken at this year's festival. Here's CPR's Eaton Lane. When you're ready... 2023 is a milestone year for the festival. After a year of major renovations... CSF's indoor venue reopened this season as the Rowe Green Theater. After this season, the university will begin a large-scale renovation of its buildings surrounding the Mary Ripon Outdoor Theater at the University of Colorado. A lot of it will be the same, but the magical experience of listening to Shakespeare under the stars, it can't be missed. Producing artistic director Tim Orr says that is why he chose the works for this season he calls the most towering. The format also features sets of casts, each performing two plays. It's one of the things I get most excited about when it comes time for casting and producing these plays is what are the two most opposite, bizarre pairing couplings of plays that we could put the same cast into? Indoors at the Royal Green Theater, Orr chose The Winter's Tale by William Shakespeare and One Man, Two Governors by Richard Bean, which Orr also directs. On the Mary Ripon Outdoor Theater stage, the cast rotates between Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing and King Lear. This is the fifth season with the Shakespeare Festival for faculty member and director Kevin Rich, who helms Much Ado About Nothing. He sets the comedy in 1920s Paris. It's the Roaring Twenties, a time when we're coming out of the Great War, and I just think that time period gives us so much to draw from. It's the jazz age, it's the, the fashion, the art and the music, and there's also this counterculture, right? The lost generation. Shante Lofton plays Hero in Much Ado About Nothing and Cordelia in King Lear. I've never played Hero before. I've always wanted to, but I never had a chance, until now. <laughs> there's just something about the wedding scene and 
her forgiveness of Claudio that has just been really intriguing to me. And so I, I love exploring questions that are really hard to answer. And, and especially like looking at those scenes now, you know, through a contemporary lens. Though Carolyn Howarth has worked with Colorado Shakespeare Festival for 13 seasons, she had a strong reaction when Tim Orr called and asked her to direct King Lear. My reaction was panic because it feels like one of those plays. I mean, it's the, the play, right? And I've already done hard ones. I've done Hamlet. I've done the histories. I've, you know, I've done those and they are hard in their own right. But Lear feels a little bit like the Everest of Shakespeare. Howarth says helping an actor with that title role feels like an important task. This time, that actor plays Friar Francis and Verges in Much Ado About Nothing before climbing the Everest that is King Lear. I mean, actors like nothing more than a real workout. And boy, oh boy, I'm, get, I'm getting a workout and really enjoying the contrast, really enjoying the work. Ellen McLaughlin taking on King Lear isn't a surprise when looking at her work, ranging from the original production of Angels in America to her adaptations of Greek plays like Antigone. She takes on the work head-on. She notes, this isn't a gender-bent King Lear. That would not have interested her. I wouldn't have done it if it was Queen Lear, uh, because I don't think that's true to the play. It's not possible in the world that Shakespeare is writing about, which is a patriarchy. It's about a father and his daughters. It's about a father and his sons, you know. And I think that the misogyny is just, it's baked in. And there is no way that a female character would have the kind of power that Lear has. McLaughlin says she feels like she has been preparing for this part all of her acting life. You don't get to play this part until you're a seasoned actor and have done a few things. And even so, it's the greatest challenge you could ever have. While this is the final season before renovations begin on the outdoor venue, Orr says the Colorado Shakespeare Festival will continue its important work. It's really magical to come together as a community and tell each other stories. It's what keeps bringing me back to the theater every year. It's what brings me into work every day. And I, uh, I want to share it with everybody. The Colorado Shakespeare Festival's four shows run through mid-August. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters cast of players. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.